Well, you can follow me back to uh, Proverbs chapter 7 as we uh, jump back into our study of Proverbs today. Um, by way of introduction, um, this is a book that uh, does lots of things. Uh, it is uh, it is timeless, it is ageless in the sense that uh, you can be you can be 10 years old or you can be 85 and come around this book and and learn and grow and be challenged in the wisdom that it gives. The, the theme of this book is a, a robust fear in and trust of the Lord himself as the beginning of wisdom, as uh, wisdom being defined as um, knowing the truth of God and being able to apply it in every situation of life. That's wisdom. It differs from knowledge in terms of application. Uh, it differs in knowledge in the sense that it is uh, intrinsically a moral knowledge. It is a, a spiritual knowledge, and it's related to our walk with God. And um, uh, it also, this book serves as somewhat of a parenting manual. Uh, it's written by a parent, and, and to some degree uh, for parents in terms of we can look over the shoulder of Solomon as parents and we can glean parental help as we learn about child training and how we address topics in the home, how we disciple our kids, uh, and, and even uh, some techniques that we can learn along the way. Uh, I've told you teenagers that this is the one book in the Bible uh, that is specifically written for you. Uh, we, we understand that everything in the Bible is is not written specifically for us, but it, or to us, but it is really written for our benefit. And uh, but this is one of those books that is written to young people in particular. And uh, so teenagers and and college students, this is a book that uh, you can glean from. And with that in mind. We're going to come to Proverbs chapter 7 today, and you'll notice there's this recurring theme. We're going to talk one more time about a topic, and, and you might be saying, hasn't he already covered this? Um, well, to some degree he has, but repetition is, is very important to learning, and, and an ongoing dialogue in the home, in relationships, is part of how we continue to learn. But he's going to come back again today to the topic of sexual sin. And now, actually, the the title of the message this morning is The Development of Sexual Temptation. Uh, Solomon, in this this chapter, he's going to walk us through the progression in a real-life situation of a young man who finds himself committing sexual sin. And um, I, I think we ought to learn, just from the repetition particularly of this, that of all of the dangers and of all of the enemies that a young person faces, and let me, let me broaden that a minute, of all of the temptations that people face, one of the most destructive and dangerous and relentless challenges we will ever face is the challenge of sexual temptation. Uh, we, we will see, as we have seen in previous chapters, that sexual sin utterly destroys. That's what it does. It, it, it destroys the person who falls into it. It destroys the people that they participate with. It destroys families. It destroys cultures. It destroys marriages. It destroys trust. It, it, it's utterly destructive in its nature. Now, all sin, we could say that, uh, that, that is true of, of all sin uh, to some degree, but there's something about sexual sin, particularly as we, we read it in the book of Proverbs and we see it in other places in Scripture, that the Bible says that this is 
uh, this is playing with spiritually radioactive material. I mean, this is something that, that will infect you and kill you and destroy you and everything else around you if you're not careful. And uh, so we want to come one more time back to the book of Proverbs chapter 7 and look at the problem, the challenge of sexual temptation and what to do about it. Now, the, the difference is um, in chapter 5, he sort of gave a, you know, here's some arguments to not do it, and here is a righteous way to think about sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. And, and it was sort of principle-based, you know, do this, don't do that, right? Well, in chapter 7, what he's going to do is he's going to illustrate many of those principles, but he's going to illustrate it through a real-life example. He's, he's going to walk his sons through a situation where they get to, to see a young man fall into sexual sin um, by way of a, a dramatic illustration. So, so let's, let's jump in here. The first five verses, we see what Solomon does often in the start of one of these new sections, and that is he gives parental warnings. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Notice we've seen this type of language before, that uh, Solomon is drawing near to his children. Listen up, pay attention. Um, and, and notice, uh, we've seen this before, so we won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but listen to the descriptions here. These descriptions are unique in terms of how he is describing his counsel. Look at this. Verse 2, keep my commandments and live. That, think of the implication of that. Uh, son, this is not about an easy life, a hard life. This is about life and death. And I want you to remember that because at the very end of the chapter, at the end of our, our time today, you will see him come back to that theme, life and death. So, uh, it's called inclusio or an envelope. If you're a literature person, you know what I'm talking about. It's the bookends of the of the section. He starts by saying this is life and death. He concludes by saying this is about life and death. And it delimits our section of Proverbs here uh, to see the impact, the importance, the, the weightiness of what is at stake in what he's about to say. Notice this too, verse 3. Bind them, meaning the teachings of God, the commandments of God, the wisdom of God, Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. What, what is that, uh, talk to me here, what is that teaching us about the relationship with the word of God that we ought to have if we're going to live in wisdom? What does that relationship mean? Okay, a daily fellowship with the Lord, okay. It's, it's a regular thing, I agree with that. What, what is he, uh, look back at verse 3. What does he mean, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart? Rich? Memorization, certainly. Uh, this isn't a want verse in some, in some regard here. But, but, but note it, what is he saying? It's not enough just to be aware, or we might even say to know things. 
that bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of the heart. They need to be internalized. The, 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 the commandments of God, the teaching of God, the word of God need to be part of who you are on the inside. And, and that's exactly what we see. This is, this is, this is utterly horrible to say, but I'm going to say it because it's absolutely true. We see in our generation Dozens, hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many Christian young people that know truth. They, they know the Bible. They, they know theology. And they fall in the area of sexual sin. And you say, why is that? Why is that? It's not a problem necessarily of knowledge. I mean, I mean sometimes, as we're going to see, you might just walk into a situation uh, in ignorance. But what he's saying here is the key is not just knowing biblical truth, it's internalizing it. And notice the emphasis. We'll see it twice here in our section on the heart. What is the heart? The heart is mission control, right? The heart is the computer of the human spirit that, that um, a person lives out of and operates out of. So if, if the Word of God has become part of the spiritual DNA of how a person lives, Solomon says, that's what you need. It needs to, you need to be walking it. You need to be living out your faith, not just walking around with a bunch of Bible knowledge. And that helps us as, as youth leaders, as Awana workers, as parents, as grandparents, you know, finding short people and ministering to them, whatever role you have in that. It's, it's not just about know this, it's about take it into your heart and live it out. And, and of course, that means we need to be living it out, right? And it means we need to not be content, and I tell our Awana workers this, and our Awana Leaders, I just want to tell you guys that aren't in Awana, they are awesome. They are the cream of the crop in our country because they're not just about uh, completing sections. You know, you finish a section, you memorize three verses, and then, you know, the little cubby gets a little badge on his, on his vest, and you say, good job. That's not what our Awana leaders are about. They want to teach them the Word of God, and then what does that mean? How do you live in light of that? How is God calling you to change? How is he calling you to think differently, to speak differently, to act differently in light of this truth that you're told? Um, if our cubbies grow up to be uh, Bible knowledge high school students, that's nothing other than Phariseeism if they're not living it out of their heart, right? So that, that's not what we want to do. Um, and that's what Solomon is talking about here. They must be in your heart and living out of them. Notice verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. What does that mean? He's saying you need to think about the wisdom of God like a close family relationship. You need to be as committed to wisdom as you are members of your own family. That's what he's saying. And he says, call their instruction or understanding your intimate friend. Uh, it, it, actually, the word intimate, translated intimate friend there, it actually is better translated a member of your family. Um, so that's the, that's the proximity. That's the closeness or commitment that um, uh, we need to have in terms of God's wisdom if we're going to walk in faith. Now, why is all that important? It's important because we want to have a life that honors God. But Solomon has a very narrow uh, conversation piece. He has a very 
a particular topic he wants to talk about. In verse 5, why should we pursue wisdom, bind it, write it, keep it, pay attention to it? Verse 5, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. There is an enemy. There is an enemy of our young people. There is an enemy that you have. You, you can be old. And yet, temptation in sexual sin is a ageless, timeless danger. And if we want to avoid it, Solomon is going to help us to see how to do that. Now remember, uh, we've talked about this before, remember the word adulterous used in parallel there with foreigner. Literally, Solomon uses the word strange woman. And that's kind of weird, but what it's saying is it is a woman who is not your wife. And if, if we, um, if, if we uh, uh, generalize it a bit, this is the person that you are not married to and there are there is sexual attraction or sexual temptation that is beginning. Okay, so that's that's what we're trying to avoid here. We're trying to avoid uh, sexual temptation, sexual attraction with somebody that is not your spouse. That's the danger. Now, now notice, and we're going to see this right before we jump in here. Notice what Solomon says at the end of verse 5. The foreigner who flatters with her words. We've seen it in chapter 5. We've seen it in chapter um, 6. That there is an emphasis when Solomon talks about sexual sin, he talks about the flattery of the adulteress. Now that may seem odd, especially if if you have um, if you have uh, uh, ministered to somebody who's struggling with pornography, or maybe somebody that's gotten caught up in adultery, and you've been that friend to come alongside and help in that situation. And you may say, "What does flattery have to do with sexual sin?" Well, I'm here to tell you, Solomon has repeated it at least three times in three different chapters, and that should tell us there's something about that that we need to figure out. And I'll be honest, the first time in studying this book years ago, trying to figure this out, I'm going, "What does flattery have to do with it?" And I want to come back to that in a moment and tell you why Solomon emphasizes flattery and the words of the adulteress as being so key to both falling into temptation and thus what we need to do to not fall into it. Okay, So so watch how this works. Verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked out through the lattice. Can you see Solomon? He's got his boys on the couch, and they're having their their family worship time. They're having their Bible time, and and they're obviously they didn't have a Bible. Um, he's the king of Israel. He's probably got a couple of Torah scrolls laying around, so he has access certainly. But they're gathering in worship, and Solomon is discipling his boys. And you know they've gone through this. They've talked about it in principle, and and, and Solomon says, "Let's go on a field trip." And the implication is that Solomon is looking out the window with his boys and they're watching this develop. Okay, It's also possible that Solomon merely uh, viewed this and then he's relating it to his boys. But it almost sounds like they're doing this together. They're, they're watching this together. They, he looks out the window and he notices, verse 7, uh, amongst the naive and <laughs> discerning amongst the youths, a young man, what does it say? What's that? He lacks sense, okay? The word naive means a young, inexperienced person. It's not a fault, it's just a state, 
It's just where he happens to be in life. He's in need of instruction. And the text literally says, uh, this is interesting, um, he, a young man lacking love. A young man lacking a heart is the word. And we say he lacks a heart. What does that mean? Now remember the emphasis on the heart we've already seen. He lacks a heart in what sense? We'll look back at verse 4. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. So Solomon is saying the word of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the truth of God have not yet been burned into this young person's heart yet. That's the emphasis. He's naive. He needs instruction. He's not prepared to go out into the world of temptation yet. Okay. So with that in mind, here's the undiscerning young person. And this is why, this is why we as a church and as parents must be in dialogue in training and shepherding our children. Because there is a hyper-sexualized culture that is beginning to educate our children when they're like three and four and five and six years old about this stuff. I mean, I mean, good night. You can't even go watch a children's movie in the theater without some sort of sexual innuendo coming across. You say, well, they're too young to notice that. Well, maybe, maybe they are too, no, too young to notice the obvious message, but they will remember the illustration. And that begins the building blocks of creating a worldview about sexual things that not just competes with, but is opposed to the things of God. So we must be in dialogue, in training, not just because our children come into the world ignorant and naive and young, but because there is a culture who wants to convert them. So be careful about that. Notice, secondly, he is ignorant of the location of danger. Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. Now, I think the way we're supposed to understand this in light of the fact that Psalm has just told us he is naive and undiscerning and doesn't know any better, is he's just, he's just going for a walk, right? And the difference is he is walking into an area, unknowingly, he's walking into an area of spiritual danger, okay? That's the implication. And, and, and this is why, again, as we teach our young people, we have to teach them that's a dangerous place. That's a dangerous spot. Don't go over there. Don't look at that. Be careful on your computer. Be careful on your phone. Be careful of that group of friends. Be careful of social media. Be careful of that movie. See, young people do not have the discernment to know where the danger is. That's why God gives parents to say, that's dangerous. You, you know, um, my kids, good night. Uh, it's amazing they survived their childhood, and, and some of them are still working through their childhood, right? Um, you know, I, I've, got, I've got children, you've seen them. They will jump out of a perfectly good tree and think that you know a 12 or 15 foot descent to the ground is no big deal cuz they're naive they're not very smart yet um they will stick forks into outlets they will take things from under the counter and think that they are remember that when they were real little and they just put everything in their mouth you know it can be milk or bleach you know and they don't know they don't know the difference cuz they're naive and so we're looking out, looking for those danger spots. So, so he comes and he doesn't know any better. Now, it is possible. There's another way to take it, and that is he's knowingly putting himself in a place of temptation. That's possible too. Um, 
And that's a whole other lesson if, uh, if that's the way we're to understand it. But I think the emphasis is he's naive, he doesn't know any better. So he goes to that street corner in downtown Dallas where the prostitutes hang out. And he's just going for a walk, he's just getting some air. But he's putting himself in danger, okay? Um, so that's, a, that's the, uh, the setup here for this situation. Look at verse 9. He goes when? In twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, it means it's not light outside when he goes, Pastor Keith. Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Okay, it's, it's nighttime as opposed to daytime. But why would Solomon point that out? He's pointing it out because nighttime is a time when there are likely less people around. So now he's naive, he's going into a situation of danger, and he's doing so without the accountability and the company of other people around him. And, and this is one of the things you have to think about sexual sin. Sexual sin is one of those things of its, of its nature has to be done somewhat in secret. Now you say, well, in our culture, you know, people don't think twice about being very public about that. That is true, and 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 is is utterly horrible about our culture. But but the point is, you have to you have to think about things in a place where you can compromise, in a place where you can have privacy or secrecy. Um, and, and I think that's what uh, our uh, Solomon is getting at here. He's out in the wrong place at the wrong time, okay? Now, now this is you say, well, how, how do we apply that in thinking about avoiding sexual sin? Um, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Uh, maybe you've not heard this before. You've got two people that are dating, Christian couple, right? Christian boy, Christian girl, and there's 18 things we need to talk about. But let's say they're dating, and that's a good thing. Um, they're committed to sexual purity, we're going we're gonna to honor God in purity. We're going to honor God with our affections uh, until uh, intimacy in marriage is honoring to God. Okay. How are they going to do that? How are they going to do that? How, is a, how does a young person, a young couple, keep themselves from sexual temptation and sexual sin in a dating relationship? Do you know how many couples, Christian couples, actually succeed in that? I'd say less than 10%, just my, my straw poll, okay? Less than 10%. Not because they didn't want to. These aren't people that are like, well, I don't know what's right, what's wrong. These are people that say, I know this is wrong. They're Christian young people. They know better. They, they know, they want to honor God. And, and they compromise. Why? Because they're stupid. That's what I said. That, that's what the word means. They put themselves in a situation where they can compromise. They put themselves in the place of danger, you ready? At night. In a place where they can compromise. And, and this is, this is, this is Keith Palmer's surefire way to avoid committing sexual sin in a dating relationship. You ready? Here it is. Don't ever put yourself in a place where you can compromise. Don't put yourself in a place of danger and don't do it at night. Meaning don't do it in a place where there's nobody else around. There's no accountability. There's no people. This is not 
rocket science. Now, now, yes, we have to think about the heart and we can be tempted in the heart and that's still sin. I get that. But in terms of actually physically compromising, if you never put yourself in a place where you can compromise, guess what? You won't. And I think that's a bit of what he's saying here. Not only is this guy putting himself in a place of danger, he's putting himself in a place of danger at night, meaning there's no accountability. There's less people around. It's, It's more secret. It's more secluded. And it's in a more likely place where he can compromise. Okay? Uh, verses 10 to 11. He meets a dangerous woman. Look at this. Verse uh, 10. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. Uh, the young men that are sitting in here, and the old men for that matter, this, this is a description of the woman that you want to run away from. Okay? Now flip that around. We, we can, we can, um, you know, th- this, this narrative is specifically about a young naive man being tempted by a prostitute. By a, a woman who is selling herself uh, in that way. And a married woman at that, okay? But understand, guys, the principles that we see here are not unique to that situation. This works, young ladies. This is absolutely applicable for you as you're thinking about who's that special guy that I hope to marry someday and who are the guys that I need to avoid. Um, old people, that's the rest of us. These, we need to look at the description and say, when I meet somebody on the soccer field, at my work, at my... Um, uh, when I'm at the store, you know, wherever there are certain characteristics of people that the Bible says those are the types of characteristics that lead to sexual temptation. So avoid those types of people or be careful of them. Now, now notice, notice the description here. Notice that, first of all, she's dressed to alert the danger. In other words, at that point, this young man should say, I need to turn around and Run, don't walk, right? Now, it's possible that his mom and dad never taught him what a prostitute is. It's possible that he sees this woman who's clothed as a prostitute, and in the 9th century B.C., everybody knew what that meant. But this young man may have no clue if his parents haven't taught him that. You say, um, why is dressing so important? Because in that culture, if, if you are going to advertise yourself uh, for sexual sin and prostitution, that's virtually the only way you do it, right? There's no other communication. There's no other advertising. There's no other, um, you know, electronic communication. All the ways that sexual sin happens today are not available in the ninth century. So if you're looking for a prostitute or if you're a woman engaged in prostitution, how do you get the word out? And the answer is largely how the woman dresses. And notice the other thing we saw, where she's hanging out, right? There's a location and there's a dress code that give that away. Now, now that's important because even in our day and age, a man needs to recognize that even if the woman is not dressing for formal prostitution, she may be dressing in a way that he says, I don't want anything to do with that. She's dressing in such an immodest way that that young man needs to run the other way. So we need to be alert to that. The way people dress, she's advertising. The danger is known there. Notice also, she's cunning. She's crafty. Um, She's up to something. 
And, and notice her speech. She's loud. She's noisy. She's boisterous. Um, this, the, you remember when, when Peter talks about the gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in the sight of God for women? Remember he talks about that? This is the opposite. She's loud and boisterous and noisy. Notice also, she has a wayward heart. She's rebellious. The word in verse 11 there where it says um, she is boisterous and rebellious. It literally means she's stubborn. She has a heart that is prone to wander, rebellious in nature. So, so young men, guys, teenagers, she's loud, she's boisterous, she's immodest, she's stubborn, she's rebellious. You turn around and you run the 100-yard dash, 180 degrees the opposite way. You avoid this girl. Notice also, her feet do not remain at home. What does that mean? Um, it could mean that uh, she's just never at home, okay? But, but the emphasis here is that she's married, we find out in a few verses. This is a married woman, and yet she's never home. And you know what that, you know what that points to? And, and this, this is so insightful. Think about this. People that end up in sexual sin, and I think this is particularly true of, um, obviously this, this woman is, is intentionally looking for it, okay? They are discontent with the role God has given them. You see that? What's her role as a married woman? Her role is to her husband. We don't know if there's children, but to the children. Her role is a ministry that is primarily starting and flowing out of her home. But she's never at home, is she? She's out. She's, she's all these other places. She is rejecting. She is rebelling the role, the context, the ministry that God has put her in. So remember that. Discontentment with where God has put her. Discontentment with her role. Very interesting. Okay? Now watch this. Uh, she's out in the streets looking. Literally, she lies in wait to ambush. She is looking for sexual sin. That's exactly what she's doing. Okay? So this is the dangerous woman. That's a great description of the person you want to avoid. Okay? Now, notice with me now her tactics. Her tactics. Verse 13. She is now in the streets, now in the squares. She lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. So we've seen sort of the description of her. Now look at her tactics. And again, I want you, I want you to zoom out and say, well, I'm not a young man, so this doesn't apply to me. Uh, you may say, I'm a man, and I've, I've, never been, I've never been tempted to, to go find a prostitute. You need to pay it. It does not matter who you are. You need to pay attention to this, because this is a, the development of sexual temptation that we're going to see. I'll point it out to you as we go, okay? Number one, she is physically forward and affectionate. You see that? She comes up to him, and she embraces him, and she kisses him. She is physically affectionate, and that is why, I'm going to get on my soapbox again, that is why in a dating relationship, a marriage relationship, or if you're a single person, I think that covers everybody, you need to be very, 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 very careful 
about physical displays of affection with the person of the opposite sex. You need to. I'm not saying a brotherly hug or a sisterly hug. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about physical affection towards somebody of the opposite sex because God designed us in a way that that affection, that physical affection uh, beyond brotherly, sisterly type things, it starts something in the relationship. That, that's why when you're dating... Physical affection is not supposed to come until you're married. And what do young people do? The first thing they do is get physically affectionate with each other. And that that creates the danger that we see here. So look out for people that are physically forward and affectionate in that context. That physical affection is part of the danger here. Notice, secondly, she is bold, or the word translates brazen. She's insolent. What does that mean? Literally, strong in the head is what the Hebrew says. Now, why is she strong in the head? Why is she brazen? Look what she says. I was due to offer peace offerings today, and today I have paid my vows. Remember I told you that the need is for the young people not just to know their Bible, know theology, but to have it burned into their hearts so they're living it out, right? That's what I told you. What's going on here? She knows what her religious service is. She knows she's supposed to offer vows. She knows she's supposed to offer peace offerings. She is part of the nation of Israel. She knows exactly what her religious duty is. You say, what's the difference? She goes and does her religious duty and says, up, I checked that box. Now I can go live however I want to live. So young person market, when a person's faith is disconnected from life, when their religion is a formality, it's a Sunday-only endeavor, it's a box to be checked, it's a statement to be made, and it does not affect the rest of their life. Look out. Look out. That's what she's saying. She's coming to him and she's saying, I have done my religious service. I'm, you know, it's almost like, and I don't want to pick on, on Catholics here, but it's almost like I've gone to confession, so now I'm set. Now I can go. I can do whatever I want to do, and then next week I'll just come back to confession again. That's her theology. That's how she's living. And you see, again, young person, look out for the person that says they're a Christian and may even go to church, but as you get to know them, the whole rest of their life is disconnected from the things of God. Look out for that person. That is not somebody you want to be hanging around, let alone forming a wonderful, uh, intimate relationship with. So she says, I've done my religious duty, but her faith is disconnected from life. Now now notice, come back to verse 15. Therefore, I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. She makes him feel like he is the most important thing in the universe. And yet, you know what? She's a prostitute. This is just another paycheck. It's just another paycheck. Now, Now, what's the subtlety here? The subtlety is this. In every sexual temptation, we are prone to think more highly of ourselves than is actually true. You say, how do I, how do you get that from that? Because self-gratification is the root of sexual sin. It is all about self. And what you believe about yourself, what you tell yourself, what you believe, 
is part of why you fall into sin. Notice also, she entices him with her imagination. She says, hey, back home, my couch is made up. It's, it's, what she say here? My couch is covered with the colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. The environment, what's she doing? She, she's causing him to think, use his imagination and think about what it will be like if he goes home with her. Now again, what do we learn about sexual temptation? We learn that it's about what's going on here. When you, th- when you begin to think, oh, this is what it'll be like. Oh, think about the pleasure. Think about how wonderful it'll be. And, and, and you're, 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 you're painting sin in a beautiful light is what you're doing. Um, you, you, and this is, um, oh, there's so much we need to talk about here. Um, this is why entertainment is so, so influential. Because entertainment, let's say it's a movie. A movie portrays, a movie can portray sin in two different ways. Um, a movie can portray sin as ugly. Those are bad guys, what they're doing are bad, and the whole theme of the movie is to show you that that sin is ugly, it's bad, right? And, and we would say, you know, that's sort of what the Bible does, right? The Bible, the Bible is not rated G. I mean, the Bible talks about all sorts of horrible sin. But listen, whenever the Bible talks about sin, it always presents it as ugly. It always presents it as wrong and offensive to God. Now, the other way that sin can be presented in an entertainment, like in a movie, is it can paint sin as beautiful. Right? It presents sin, that same sin, not as something to be avoided, not as a horrible thing to, to scoff at, but as a beautiful thing. You know, th- th- guys, th- think of, think of the movie where the woman is married to the loser husband. And he mistreats her, he's ugly to her, he says horrible things, he's disconnected, he's off doing his own thing, and then she meets that guy in the office who gives her attention who gives her affection, who is kind and gentle to her. And in the movie, you and I get caught up in that, right? And we go, what a loser that husband is. What a nice guy, that other guy. And and the movie is taking sin, being attracted to somebody that's not your spouse, and it is drawing you in emotionally saying, I really want that wife to ditch her loser husband and go after this guy that cares about her. You know how many movies have that as a line? And I'm not picking on any particular movie. That's, that's one example of what I'm talking about. And that's what's going on here. She's painting sin in a beautiful light, not in an ugly light. And if you're going to fall into sexual sin, you have to do that. You have to take something you know is sinful, and in your mind you have to use your imagination to make it a beautiful, wonderful thing. And actually that helps us to know how to combat it because if, if sin, sinful temptation arises in your mind, one of the ways you combat it is by telling yourself how ugly and horrible and destructive it is. That's what Proverbs chapter 5 was about. Okay, we got to keep going. So, and finally she invites him to sin. Notice also the commentary here, okay? Oh, where did we go? Did we miss a slide? Okay, 18 is, yes, the invitation. Um, no, I, I, I did miss it. Okay, um, and I don't know if this is in your notes or if it's just a thing on the side. Look at verses 19 and 20. Notice this. She says there's no way we can get caught. 
There's no way we can get caught. Why? My husband has gone on a long journey. Uh, he's not at home. He's taken a bag of money. Uh, he's not coming back till the full moon. What is she saying? There's no way. You, and do you know what you have to commit sexual sin? You know what you have to tell yourself? I can get away with this. I can get away with this. Okay? I, I, I will not get caught. You have to tell yourself that. You have to argue with yourself, I can't get caught if I do this. Now watch this. Watch the commentator jump in here. This is Solomon now jumping in and talking. Verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Remember I told you about that? He is enticed or deceived and then seduced and led astray by her smooth speech. So here's the principle. This is why flattery is always a part of Solomon's commentary with sexual sin. Here it is. Because temptation is highly dependent upon what you listen to and what you tell yourself. That's the principle. Temptation is highly dependent upon who you listen to and what you tell yourself. Because that is how you operate. You operate out of what you're thinking, what you're believing, what you're telling yourself. Verse 22. And suddenly he follows her. And, and, and the Hebrew is emphatic. It's, it's actually translated shockingly. And this is that part where you're watching. Remember, he's, he's looking out the lattice. He's got his boys with him. Here he goes. They're having a conversation. And you're sitting there going, no, no. You, you ever watch a movie? And the, and the person is going to walk into danger and you're almost, you're in the theater going, don't open the door, don't open the door. That's what's going on here. Everybody's going, no, no, no. And suddenly, shockingly, he follows her home. And Solomon said, you know what that's like? It's like an ox going to the slaughter. So the question is, how does an ox go to the slaughter? Cluelessly. Completely oblivious to the fatal danger that is coming. That's what he says here. Or, and there's a translation issue here, it's probably something like a dog in fetters or a stag caught in a trap. Uh, the, the Hebrews actually doesn't make sense, so we have to look at the Syriac and the Septuagint and some other translations. Um, but it, the idea is it's caught, right? It, it, it's, he, he's caught. This, this, is, this is, you know, you're out fishing, and the fish has caught, has bit down on the hook. It's, it's in his lip. And you're reeling him in. And there's nothing that fish can do at that point. Okay? It's caught until, verse 23, an arrow pierces through his liver. That's fatal. A bird hastens to the snare. That's fatal. Fatal. 23. And th- this, this is the most sobering, well, one of the most sobering lines in the whole book. Suddenly he goes after her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, and so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Literally, he does not know it will be his soul, is what the Hebrew says. Listen to the parent. Come back to the parental warning. Here it is. Now, therefore, my son... Can you see the boys? They're listening to this. They're watching this. Their eyes are about this big now. They're like, what just happened? And Solomon says, now listen to me, son. He looks him square in the eye. He's got... Do you know that the parent pointer finger? You ever do that? Now listen to me, son, right? 
Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your... What's the word? Your heart. There it is again. Do you see the problem? The problem is not ultimately the prostitute. The problem is not ultimately the place of danger. The problem is not ultimately being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The problem is you must guard your heart. Do not let your heart turn aside or or deviate, the, the text says, to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all, are all her slain. Uh, teenagers, do you know how many young people have failed here? Do you know how many old people have failed here? If, if we were to pile up human beings who have gotten involved in sexual sin, it would, it would be miles and miles and miles and miles long. Many are her victims. Verse 27. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. I love how the New Living Translation puts this. Listen to this. Her house is the road to the grave, and her bedroom is the den of death. That completely captures the essence of what he says there. So be careful. Guard your heart. Train your heart in the things of God. Live out the things that you're, you're learning in Scripture. Don't go near the dangerous place. Don't know, know where the danger is. Don't go near it. Watch out for people. Don't be, don't let your heart follow the wrong person. Young people, my, my prayer, and, and I, I, every, every person in this room would agree, is that you would heed these warnings. You would say, that's me if I'm not careful. And old people, you know what? This is us if we're not careful. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, these, these are such, such overwhelming verses of, of danger and of destruction. And Lord, I just want to pray, especially for our young people today, will you help them to draw near to you in, in, in godly fear right now, in, in thinking about what has just happened in this narrative? Will they draw near to you, being rightly, in a godly way, scared and fearful of what might become of their lives if they're not careful? And might that lead to a, a resolve before you, a growing trust, a commitment, a, a, a seriousness about their walk with you, and, and an alertness as to the sexual temptations and dangers that are literally around them every day, and in many cases, even moment by moment. Lord, I pray for purity in the hearts of our young people and and righteous, godly relationships. Might we learn from this description here and and for us old people as well that we we would not think that we're too old to be beyond these things because we are not. Lord, would you guard our hearts? Would you help us to depend on you and and to quickly and to... um, quickly run away and to be serious about the threat and to not let our guard down. And, and while we do, that we would run to the Lord Jesus who will give us grace 
to help. Grace to say no. Grace to walk in godliness. Father, I pray, will you, will you purify us here? Will you work in us and through us to make us a people that walks in holiness, particularly in the perversity of the sexual culture that we live in and in the perversity of our own fallenness that we know could so easily, this young man here could so easily be us. And we pray, Lord, that you would guard us from it. In Jesus' name, amen.